it's just shocking when you hear the numbers. So the largest cargo ships, these container ships, carry about 24,000 TEUs. Again, those are those big metal containers we all see. So just to give you some context, if you were to take these 24,000 TEUs and line them up end to end, you'd have a 90 mile long row of containers or a 45 mile train because we double stack them usually on trains. That's Patty Miles, Associate Professor of Management Science in the Maine Business School at the University of Maine, talking about the immense size of the cargo ships that deliver many of the things we buy to our country. Those ships are now caught in the world's biggest traffic jam. I'm Ron Lisnett, and this is the Main Question Podcast. Whether we like it or not, most of us are getting a crash course in how the global economy works or doesn't work these days. There are shortages of many of the products and materials we once took for granted. Lumber, cars, computer chips, and just about every other product you can think of have been affected by a few kinks in what is known as the global supply chain. As the economy recovers, demand is way up for a lot of products. Production is down due to the pandemic. Cargo ships are stuck outside major ports like Long Beach, California, sometimes for weeks on end. With about 40% of what we buy coming from Asia going largely into the ports of Long Beach and Los Angeles, the traffic jam on the water is pretty severe. On top of that, our behaviors are changing. People are spending more time at home, working on their houses and gardens, traveling and going out to eat less. With all of this converging at the same time, it's little wonder the global economy is taking a hit and that all we want for Christmas might possibly not get here in time. This kind of logistical problem is something Patty Miles has made a career out of studying. It's a kind of complex problem with tons of variables that she loves to dig into. Starting in the military, she has worked on setting up global supply chains. Now she teaches humane business students how the whole system works. She spoke with us about that and the logistics of what it takes to make, ship, and purchase the stuff we buy. Patty, thanks for joining us. We could probably spend hours talking about this. It's certainly a complicated issue, but if you had to boil it down or put it in a nutshell, how did we get here? What, 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 What happened to get us to this point? I think from my perspective, there's a whole host of reasons how we got here, but I think I'm gonna focus on some of the biggest obstacles that I think there are out there and the most difficult to, to untangle. So I, I, the way I see it, there's, there's three big obstacles. So the first is the structure of the port system in the United States. So ports are owned by towns for the most part, especially on the West Coast. They're owned by towns. And so upgrades to the ports are usually not funded by the federal government. And the towns really can't afford it either. So for just one example, in 2020, 9% of the annual budget came from government agencies for ports in general, which is, you know, of course, a tiny amount. The ports cast capital campaigns out there to raise money for major renovations, but It's just mind-boggling to consider um, how these processes affect these ports because, for example, the Port of Long Beach processes about 8 million uh, TEUs, which are those big containers, a year. And so 2018, that was a high year for them. And in 2021, all of a sudden now, so just a couple years later, they have already processed more than they processed in 2018 
by, you know, they, they have processed 8.1 million TEUs as of September. So, I mean, you know, we have several months left in the year. So they will way exceed what they're used to doing. So it's not that they don't have the capability. They do. They have, you know, for example, the Port of Long Beach has 80 berths, 22 shipping terminals, and they employ 51,000 people. But it's just not enough when it ramps up so quickly. Right now, currently, I just checked this morning, there's 35 vessels waiting outside of the Port of Long Beach and Los Angeles. And they wait between an average, they wait an average of 17 days is what it says, but some of them have been waiting for 46 days. And so, you know, it takes a while. And once they get into port, then it takes like 10 to 14 days, they've got to get them all offloaded and then get them turned around and ship them out again. So that's problem number one. Problem number two, I think, is the containers all need chassis to be useful. So one of the issues with the independent nature of the way ports have evolved in our country is this chassis business. And so chassis Essentially, you set the cargo on it and then you can hook a truck up to it and drive it away. But on the West Coast, all the chassis are maintained by the ocean carriers. So Maersk, for example, they don't really want to necessarily share their chassis with, you know, Del Monte or, you know, some other country uh, company. And so now um, the chassis that are available aren't necessarily able to be utilized because they actually are owned by another entity. So on the East Coast, this isn't necessarily the case. So Virginia and South Carolina's ports are both actually um, operated by the state. And so they have created these chassis pools, which they could use. However, the ships that are on the West Coast can't necessarily just zip over to the East Coast because it takes them about, if you can believe this, 10 days to get there. And Some of these ships that are over on the West Coast are so large, they cannot pass the Panama Canal. They're post-Panama Canal-sized ships, so it wouldn't even be possible. And then I would say the third issue is the issues around the trucking in the U.S. So labor and how the payment is made in dealing with these containers and the chassis, there's this company called Hapig Lloyd, and they report a $4.2 billion earnings increase in the first half of 2021. And that's due mostly in part to this increase in shipping costs. They pay between, you know, $500 and $700 to have a container move, but the port truckers get $50 to $75 for moving that same container. And so the other problems with the trucking system is that they only get paid for moving their cargo from point A to point B. And the amount of time it takes to do this is all on them. And so with all the ports and all of the systems so clogged, they lose a ton of money because they're spending a lot of time sitting around because they used to be able to get in and pick up their container in a half hour. And now it takes at least an hour, if not longer. And so before this Motor Carrier Act of 1980 that changed everything, then the ports own the truckers or own the capability to truck the stuff out. Now that's all been decentralized and gone to these trucking companies. So really, I think at the end of the day, the problems are just so macro, but they influence these ports in so many ways that we love the free market, but it does have its downside. And here it is being manifested, I think.
we always hear that metaphor of it takes a long time to turn around an ocean liner. In this case, it's it's literally true, right? right. <laughs> yes, it is very true for sure. So t- take us through some of the basic brushstrokes of, of how the global supply chain works. China and Asia produces a lot of goods that we consume. Talk about the, the way stuff flows into our houses and our, our lives. The U.S. imports about 220 billion, $700 million worth of products. And we export way less than that by about half, 134 billion, 150 million. So in the U.S., in 2021, we have already imported more than that. And 42% of that comes from Asia. So this makes the ports on the West Coast, obviously, really busy. So because of all these issues that I just was talking about, it makes the problem so complicated, all because of this whole chassis thing. There's the birth issue, which is what's causing the backup. And then once they get in the birth, they can't always get everything offloaded the way they want to because there's related to all this is these labor shortages because the people that need to be working the ports there's so much more time off for sickness related you know to the to the global pandemic so the current shipping containers are you know stacked five deep at the port of long beach in los angeles mostly because they just can't get the chassis married up with the containers and the truckers married up with the chassis to move the containers across the globe or whatever wherever they're going so much stuff it's just hard to imagine how much stuff actually comes in to the west coast but that's mainly because we get so much of our imports from asia how much of what we buy does come through los angeles and long beach and it is is that a bottleneck definitely that's a huge bottleneck because 40 roughly 42 percent of everything we buy comes through the west coast and that's just durable goods. I mean, that's not even including all of the other myriad of things that get shipped, cars, all kinds of chemicals, et cetera. This is just durable goods, 42% of which come through the ports on the West Coast. And the Port of Long Beach and the, and the Port of LA are often in the news because they're the deep water ports out there. And these big ships really need you know, deep water. Consider this, in 1995, the Port of Long Beach processed, and that's like inbound and outbound and moving around empties, about 2 million TEUs of freight. That's the big, huge uh, steel containers. In 2020, the port processed over 8 million TEUs, which is an increase of 185% in just 15 years. So to provide a context to that, If we took 8 million TEUs and strung them together end-to-end, the train would stretch some 30,732 miles, which is longer than the Earth's circumference, which is just about 24,900 miles. But this was not always the case at the Port of Long Beach. In just 10 years ago, the TEUs strung together would not quite close around the Earth's circumference with them stretching about 23,725 miles. So this is really a lot of durable goods coming from the ports in Asia. But I think that the details are really a little bit more shocking and they really illuminate the complexity of the situation. 
Because when you examine the TEUs processed by month at the Port of Long Beach, what's really striking is that the average monthly processing over the years at the Port of Long Beach between 2020 and 2021, the average monthly increase is about 16%. That's just a monthly increase. And if you don't like comparing to 2020 because of the pandemic, etc., and we go back to 2019, then the increase between 2019 and 2021 is 24%. This is a lot of additional stuff that they are processing. If we continue with the containers converted to miles, the increase between 2020 and 2021 is some 425 miles long. And if we look at between 2019 and 2021, then the distance is some 577 miles. And if we put that in terms of road mileage, the distance that the 425 mile gap would cover would go from Orono down to New York City. And if we consider the difference between 2019 and 2021, well, now we're talking about 577 miles, which would get us all the way to Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. So a monthly increase of 16% doesn't really seem like much when you're talking about eating a little more for the holidays, but it is quite a different story when we consider moving TEUs. Just talk a little bit about the logistics of all this. It's sort of fascinating to see these ships and how much they carry. How big are they and, and how much can they hold? And, and, and then you, you talked about how they get to our store shelves, but just the logistical feat to get it across the ocean on these boats, it, it looks unbelievable, really. It's just shocking when you hear the numbers. So the largest carry, cargo ships, these container ships, carry about 24,000 TEUs. So again, those are those big metal containers we all see. So just to give you some context, uh, if you were to take these 24,000 TEUs and line them up end to end, you'd have a 90-mile long you know, row of containers or a 45-mile train because we double stack them usually on trains. And so <clears throat> these ships themselves, while they're floating out in the ocean, they're about six stories high and about 1,200 feet long or about 3.3 football fields and about one football field wide. And these ships have this draft that goes down underneath the water about 50 feet. And so these are the sorts of ships that have a difficult time passing the Panama Canal. They call them post-Panama ships. They can't, the, the berths or the locks are not set up for this size of a ship. So that's the container ships that are carrying all these durable goods that we're talking about. But there's also tankers. And tankers are the big ships that carry all kinds of liquid. And they're a little bit newer into the shipping industry because we didn't realize we could carry bulk uh, liquid in, until much later. But anyways, they carry about 550,000 dead weight tonnage. And they carry all kinds of stuff like oil, liquefied petroleum gas, natural gas, chemicals, ammonia, chlorine, fresh water, wine, molasses, and citrus juice. So <clears throat> all of this stuff requires, you know, pumping on and off and particular types of ports. So out on the West Coast, this kind of stuff doesn't necessarily always come into the Port of Long Beach and the Port of LA because they're much more set up for containers. A lot of this stuff, there's a big port for this up just near the San Francisco in a place called Richmond, which is very close by the Oakland container ship. And that, and that port in Richmond allows sort of the offload of this kind of stuff. 
And then the third type is these ROROs, which are, it's short for roll-on, roll-off ship. And these ships really became big in about 1965-70 when Toyota started really producing in earnest for the U.S. But anyways, these ships carry some 8,000 cars across its 10 to 15 decks. And they average, just the average container is about six, the average type of ship like this carries about 6,500 cars on 12 decks. And so most of these cars are driven on and off, but they can also use these ships and this thing called a self-propelled motor transporter. It's like a big platform and it can carry on really big vehicles. It can be used to also process like big sections of bridges and oil refining equipment and cranes and other special stuff because these um, vessels are able to yes they have 15 floors but they can move these floors around allowing for much larger cargo to be held in their hold they also bring a huge amount of stuff into the united states so those are kind of our three big shipping mechanisms in in the u.s so let me get my, my head around this. So when you talk about a container, that's basically the back of a tractor trailer, more or less, correct? Yes. So there's 24,000 of those on one ship. On one ship. It boggles the mind. And then there's a, a boat with 550 tons of orange juice floating around out there somewhere, potentially. Is that just hard to believe? And molasses, they also put in these things. I mean, who knew? And wine. That's the one that might get hijacked the first, I guess, right? Yeah, I guess so. Maybe they have to worry about that one from the pirates. So I'm curious, how, how did you get to the point that this is something that you're, you know, interested in digging into? You know, what do you basically study and teach? And is a complex problem like this that has all these different variables and logistics, is that something that you, you really like to dig into? So I absolutely love digging into this. Um, I've, I've really enjoyed doing, you know, a ton of research for a class I'm currently teaching um, about supply chain. But I have to say that my career um, as a logistician started when I joined the Army back in uh, the mid-1980s. And just by luck, in about my third year of the Army, I found myself working at a port in Pusan, Korea. And I was actually running an airborne unit in Korea, but because of the nature of our unit, we had to work with the Navy to support special operations. That was just sort of part of my job. And working with the part of working with the port in Pusan, I just thought it was so fascinating. And I mean, I guess anybody would think it was interesting, but then I progressed on up the ranks. And when I was working in a special cell in support of Operation um, Iraqi Freedom, as a member of Joint Forces Command in Norfolk, <clears throat> we were faced with some real big problems on how to get equipment um, across the ocean to, to facilitate the invasion to Iraq. And we just didn't have enough ships that we needed to get everything over there. And so we began, I began looking to see what we could do about it. And what I ended up uh, deciding to do was to take a port from Virginia and move it to where we needed it to be to, in order to offload all the equipment, which really kind of got me much more interested in how the supply chain works. But then even as we got the port set up and we started moving equipment, at this time, we really didn't have RFID technology very well developed. And later, our office would come up with a much better RFID technology. But at the time, we didn't have anything. So the stuff is moving 
but we don't really know what's moving and what's going to be there and where to find it. And so that just got me so fascinated into the idea that, you know, you can't do anything without the stuff you need. And so being ha- having some system for tracking is, you know, obviously really important. So after I finished all that work with the Army, um, I actually began researching the port of Long Beach just because I was interested in it because I used that kind of as a model for what I was trying to do with the Army. But then when I applied to PhD programs about a little bit later, um, after I left the Army, I decided I wanted to be a college professor and um, I really wanted to just study supply chain because I was just so in- fascinated by it all at that time. And so I got involved in studying logistics and operations. But then supply chains weren't nearly as interesting as they are right now because everything was working so nicely, right? And we weren't importing quite so much stuff from Asia at the time. And, you know, things were just starting to ramp up. Then over time, you know, time passes. And about a year and a half ago, we started talking. Well, I guess it was actually pre-pandemic. So it must have been maybe three years ago now, two years ago. We started talking about teaching a supply chain course as a part of our MBA at the University of Maine. And I was just sort of a natural fit to teach it because I had so much supply chain experience, you know, in the real world. However, once I immersed myself in learning everything about supply chain that I could, I realized, wow, you know, things have changed so much, but I just find it so fascinating. I don't know, ships are interesting to me and moving stuff is so cool and how it gets wherever it's going from point A to point B is just fascinating. I mean, who wouldn't love all that stuff? It's so cool. (laughs) That's great that you're into it like that. I'm so into it. (laughs) Has this latest situation sort of exposed some underlying problems and how good is the United States compared to the big ports in the rest of the world? You know, you've probably heard on the news, um, other countries, you know, like China comes to mind, you know, they've invested so much into their port infrastructure in China, right? Because, you know, they ship so much, so much stuff out, but we don't really invest like that in the U.S. And furthermore, we have quite an incentive to keep our inventory levels low as a matter of fact, you know, total quality management came really into favor into the 19, in, you know, like the 80s, roughly. And it had clear benefits for manufacturers, right? If we use total quality, which includes, you know, just in time, and then manufacturing plants right down to the local bike shops are encouraging people to don't keep your supply in your store, keep it in the supply chain because this is going to be so much cheaper for you. So over time, people did this. Now they're saying, wow, well, is this really the way we should do this? Maybe we need to keep a little bit more safety stock on hand. But, you know, as you know, the more capacity you have, the more money it costs to hold the stuff. And so In order for firms to be competitive, they have to keep their costs way down. And so one way to do it is to keep the supply in the supply chain. But now when there's a problem, then it's a problem for everybody. It might seem like it would be better to keep this or more safety stock in the place, wherever it is at your your distribution center or your manufacturing plant or whatever. But profits will not go up when you do that. And because we tend to have sort of a short-term outlook on things, it's a little bit harder to get the bottom line to be higher when you're actually holding more inventory than you ever had. And so 
I don't know, but I do know also that shipping companies are raking in the profits right now. So Maersk, which is, I think, the biggest shipping company out there, it's actually a Danish company, um, it has recorded profits in the third quarter higher than in the last 117 years, having a profit of $5.9 billion. But what is interesting about that to me is not necessarily that their profits are big. We know they're big because they're charging more, right? They used to charge $2,000 to ship a container. Now they're charging $25,000 to ship a container. But what's fascinating about this to me is that in quarter three of 2020, Maersk shipped 3,283 million TEUs, right? So 3,283 million TEUs in, in, uh, in 2020. And in quarter three of 2021, Maersk shipped just about the same amount, actually a little tiny bit less, about 20,000 TEUs less, but they earned 89% more total revenue than they did in that other quarter that we're comparing it to. So they're shipping the same amount of product, but they're earning 89% more revenue, which equates to that $5.9 billion increase, which is the biggest profit that they have all total. If they total up all the years they've been in business, this is more profit than they've ever made. So keeping the supplies in the supply chain may not be as profitable as it once was. However, that's what we're doing in businesses really. So for every every action, there is certainly a, a reaction. So maybe one of those is production of goods at home. Is that a good idea? And is that a trend we'll see? People will buy local more? Well, I mean, it seems to me that buying local is really the best option for Christmas of 2021. I mean, actually, buying local is always a good idea because, you know, we don't always think about the footprint of our Apple Watch, but I've read that, you know, our Apple Watch has already traveled some 200,000 miles by the time it even gets to our pocket, or I mean, our Apple phone or watch or whatever, because um, the supply chains are so complex. And so buying local is always a good idea, in my opinion. And if the more local we buy, then we reduce our dependence on the broader supply chain. And by purchasing our goods and services locally, we avoid our own personal dependency on the supply chain, which seems to me like it'd be a good thing, right? I mean, none of us can change the world, but each of us can change our little part of the world. And it seems to me that we all might consider this. I mean, as well, we could spend a little less. We do get a lot of stuff from Asia that, you know, we may not actually really need. And so I, I was thinking about this and I thought, you know, if we spent a little bit less and instead enjoyed the company of our you know, friends and family a little bit more, that might be a better way to spend our time. Of course, that's not really my area of expertise, but it seems to me that spending more time with our loved ones rather than money on them would cut down on waste and increase everybody's happiness. And I don't see how that could be anything but a good thing. That would be great if that happened. And not, not to put you on the spot here, but do you think most people will get what they want for Christmas? Will this situation resolve itself in weeks, months? When do we get back to quote-unquote normal, if that's even possible? Yeah, I don't really think it will be back to normal, certainly not by Christmas. Um, I suspect it will take at least a year uh, to start to work itself out. You know, our spending in the U.S. typically goes up, you know, this quarter of the year, right, because we spend more around the holidays. 
And so, you know, I, I don't see it working itself out. I mean, I think if we were having this conversation a year from now, we might be talking about slightly different things, but I suspect some of the kinks will still be there. I mean, it it's just a mess. I mean, things like having chassis and containers down in South America that we don't normally have them there, and we've got to go get them all picked up and get them back to where they need to be. You know, there's just so many oddities that occurred uh, with the pandemic, right? With stopping production and starting production, and then shipping stuff to places we don't normally ship to, and then not picking up the containers. I mean, it's it's going to take a while to, to get it all worked out. As for whether or not we'll get everything we want for Christmas, I guess it depends on what we want, right? If we want to spend time together, I think this is a great time to do it. But if we want some unique new toy produced in China, it might be a little harder to get, I think. Speaking of the pandemic, it, obviously that has caused major shifts in what people do and what they buy. Home improvements probably up, travel is down, that kind of thing. Do you think these trends will stick and ripple through the supply chain and upset things even further, possibly? The pandemic kind of forced our hand, uh, you know, just what we're doing now with Zoom. You know, I, I, I'm pretty certain that if you would have asked me to do this two years ago, I, I would have never entertained the idea of doing this by Zoom, right? I mean, we would be together in an office. But now Zoom is so commonplace, right, that I suspect the workplace will change because companies don't need to spend big dollars to own big buildings when they can have their workforce dispersed. I mean, you know, it's not true for all industries, but many. And so if the workplace changes, I mean, a lot of the spending that we see is, you know, the increase in spending in um, furniture and wood is, you know, we're up, I know, it's like 36% in spending on those type of things. I suspect that's not going to go away, right? You don't have to commute anymore. You know, if nothing else, you save yourself an hour a day. And in some cities, probably two or three hours. So I don't know. I suspect the environment that we live in will be different. I don't, I mean, I can't know what it will be, but I don't think it's going to just go back to pre-pandemic the way we did things. So if you looked out 10 years, what do, what do you think we'll see? Are we going to have everything, our pizzas delivered by drones or robots? Or what, where, where are we headed with all this? Hopefully these problems will have been solved. But what does that look like as you look out into the future? Well, I mean, don't you think that, you know, we have to look at the uh, carbon footprint that all of that stuff makes. And to me, that's a really important thing. I mean, personally, I don't think I want drones delivering my stuff from Amazon, right? I mean, be, just because the footprint, the carbon footprint is just going to be too large. It's very difficult to isolate uh, how having all this stuff delivered from Amazon or other big carriers, you know, using FedEx and UPS, how that has shifted uh, consumption of fuel and, you know, how that's affected our carbon footprint. But I my guess would be it has to have gone up. I mean, in 10 years, I don't know. <laughs> I can't imagine. <laughs> if you knew, you would be a, a multi-billionaire at this point, probably, right? I probably wouldn't be sitting in Orono, Maine, if I knew the answer to that. But I do think that this pandemic has been a really good eye-opener for all of us, you know, to, you know, reconsider what 
is important and what we do and how we spend our time. Fascinating stuff. Well, thanks so much for taking the time to talk to us about it. Yes, my pleasure. You can find The Main Question on Apple and Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and SoundCloud, UMaine's Facebook and YouTube pages, as well as Amazon Music and Audible. Send along your questions or comments to mainquestion at maine.edu. This is Ron Lisnett. We'll catch you next time on The Main Question.